Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts and Evergreen Podcasts Network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre. And uh, happy holidays, everybody. Merry Christmas. Uh, happy Hanukkah. Kwanzaa, if you celebrate Kwanzaa. Um, Blessed Yule. Blessed Yule to all the pagans out there. Hell yeah. Uh, we are in the holiday season. Um, and all of that said, Carrie, you, you, I think you said something about wanting to put the Christ back into Christmas with this episode. Is that, is that kind of your idea here? No. <laughs> you were talking, no, you were talking a lot about this before the podcast, about the, this war on Christmas and how we have to push back. I think you're mistaking me for Bill O'Reilly. <laughs> No, but we've definitely mentioned it here and there in past episodes. Uh, but as a refresher, Sean, you and I grew uh, up... Just to be crystal clear, we have not mentioned the war on Christmas no. in past <laughs> That's not what you mean. No, but we grew up Catholic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we talk about that in the context of, like, I don't know, Diablo 4. <laughs> sure. Uh, and there's no surprise, we are the progeny of Irish and Italian immigrant families. So that'll happen. Mm-hmm. So, inspired by the holiday season, though not necessarily the war on Christmas, <laughs> uh, as well as some recent Wikipedia rabbit holes, I decided to take us back to CCD this week for a dive into the craziest, scariest, weirdest backstories of some of the strangest Catholic saints, as well as tales of stigmata, holy relics, and incorruptible remains. And these are the stories they... I mean, shamefully left out of those CCD classes in most cases, oh, right? Oh my God. I would have been having so much more fun. Just as an aside, I think I, I might have mentioned this before, but we once had like a, <laughs> to their detriment, really, we once had a bishop come uh, do like a, an AMA, <laughs> like an ask me anything. Uh, and I was in like fourth grade. So I'm like, are ghosts real? Sure. I mean, great question. And he's like... Well, there's, you know, the Holy Spirit. And, <laughs> and so my, yeah, so like, are there ghosts? Because there's a Holy Ghost. And he he's doing his best not to tell me that ghosts are real. I was really pressing the point, though. He, he did a, a nice marketing judo there. He's like, well, the Holy Ghost. Let me tell you and more I about say, that. Exactly. So ghosts are real. <laughs> uh, so that was, I was that kind of kid in CCD. And yeah, if, if they had actually really taught us about these really wild stories of the saints, I think I would have been a lot more interested. For sure. For sure. You're, you're like, oh, I want to do that. It would be bleeding <laughs> from the palms. This sounds, Love it. This sounds awesome. Now, as with any subject related to religion, we want to stress that we respect Catholicism and all that, if not 
respect some of the more hypocritical practitioners, but as former Catholics ourselves, I felt like we were pretty qualified to discuss these stories with a little wonder and a lot of humor because a lot of it is wild and funny. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. I, have, I haven't taken a look at your notes, but I... Uh, I know that there's some some weird stuff coming our way. Oh, I didn't even scratch the surface, Sean. So it doesn't mean we're shaming any devout believers or even claiming these saints are fakes or whatever. We just want to get that disclaimer out of the way because, uh, it, you know, it is historical. We're talking about history here, but when you bring religion or politics into it, things get a lot more tender and sensitive. So just wanted to throw that out there. But now that we have, let's go back in time and meet some of the kookiest saints in Catholicism. <laughs> there are over 10,000 Catholic saints, which is a surprising number to me. Yeah. Uh, but we're only going to cover a handful today, so don't worry. We're going to start way back at the very beginning, a very good place to start, as Maria von Trapp would say. Sure. Uh, with one of the most brutal backstories, that of St. Bartholomew. Uh, Simpson. Just, uh, no surname. Could have been Simpson. <laughs> Doubt it. Bartholomew, said, Bar <laughs> Bartholomew, don't have a cow man, Simpson. <laughs> Bartholomew, also identified as Nathaniel, was one of Jesus's 12 apostles, according to the New Testament of the Bible. So he was a literal OG of Christianity. Af um, OA. Sure. I'm sure he was pretty gangsta too. After Christ's ascension, Bartholomew went on a missionary tour to India, also hitting up Mesopotamia and Parthia, as well as Lycaonia and Ethiopia, in some accounts. Quite a tour. And Greater Armenia. In Armenia, uh, Bartholomew is reputed to have teamed up with his fellow apostle Jude, also known as Thaddeus. Hey! Jude. Uh, to bring Christianity to the region. In the Hellenic tradition, Bartholomew was executed in Armenia after having converted Polemius, the local king, to Christianity. So you would think that would give him some sort of, you know, defense there. Like, the local king's a Christian now, so you can't kill me. Right, he's going to help you out. Who, who had him executed? Uh, his brother, the king's brother, Prince Astyages, uh, who feared backlash from the Romans, and we're going to be talking about the Romans a lot today. Uh-huh. Did he have his brother killed as well? I don't know, but he de he certainly had Bart killed. <laughs> and According to tradition. Kind of along those lines, you'll hear me say reputed to, or allegedly, or according to legend, or it is said many times in this episode. Just keep in mind, many of these stories are from centuries, if not thousands of years ago, and of course, many of them may have been reshaped to suit any contemporary needs or religious propaganda like any other ancient history. Yeah. I'm not saying that happened, but, you know, within a couple millennia, it's more than possible. That's what's kind of fun about um, ancient history is like, well, some of it's definitely made up. But and some of it, they're obviously not understanding what's really going on because of medical reasons or scientific reasons or whatever. And it's hard to parse out what's what. Uh, and that makes uh, the distinction matter less. So it's like, yeah, some of this stuff's just a little magical. That's, that's all right. Yeah. And there is no historical record of a King Polemius in Armenia. So maybe he was scrubbed from the record. Maybe he was killed by his brother. 
Um, or there might have been an error. Other accounts identify the king in question as Agrippa, a.k.a. Tigranes VI, or King Senatruk. But Bartholomew was said to be martyred in three different ways, though the last option is really the main event of this story and really the one he's most often connected to. Okay, so these are three alternate endings. These, It's not like... <laughs> Choose it, your own martyrdom. It's not a Rasputin situation where <laughs> no, it's like, oh, it didn't take. No. There's a few of those in here. <laughs> so may, maybe they just divided it all up. Yeah, I know they need miracles to become saints. So I almost did talk about one that was like, the Rasputin, uh, the John Wick of <laughs> saintdom. But first, Bartholomew may have been kidnapped, beaten unconscious, and cast in the sea to drown. Not great. Or he may have been crucified upside down, which was a popular way to martyr early Christian missionaries. You know what? Throw me in the sea. Yeah. Uh, St. Peter himself, the de facto first pope, was crucified in this way. But the most par- popular martyrdom attributed to Bartholomew was also possibly the most brutal of the three. He's traditionally said to have been skinned alive in the year 68. Yikes. So the Boltons got him. And then beheaded. Only after he was skinned. So he went through all that and then he was beheaded. And that was they thought he was a vampire or? They, just, they knew they he was a Christian. Didn't like him. So hence, Bartholomew is often depicted in art as having been flayed or as holding part or all of his own flayed skin like some sort of fucked up boa. Um, I made this for you. Including in the famous and gruesome piece, St. Bartholomew the Apostle by Matteo di Giovanni di Bartolo. Sean, this wouldn't look out of place with the horror posters and spooky prints in our podcast studio. You oh, see, I'm all or- that red is is his inside skin. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I get it. It's like a... And th- he's holding his outside skin. Oh, see, the- you see, you can see his little hands loose. Yeah, that kind of silk robe isn't a, isn't a robe at all. That's his uh, body. Well, we should blow that up and put that in the studio. It's I think- pretty metal. Yeah, that's... Uh, it's like he's like, he's like Chippy Toe Tech, Carrie. And he's look- he looks so disinterested. He's like, it's a living. <laughs> <laughs> Which I love. I love that. Uh, His official symbols are three flaying knives and uh, just his flayed skin, just kind of loose. Just loose skin? Loose skin. Quite a symbol. (laughs) Like, you know, in... uh... You know how a D&D cleric presents their holy symbol to, like, do magic? You just throw some (laughs) unattached skin. Yeah, presenting your own loose skin. (laughs) I mean, it's... It's kind of a baller move if you think about it. It's like, whoa. Oh, wait, back, vampire. I, You know what? I'm not even going to mess with this guy. <laughs> He's too extreme for me. Along with being patron saint of Armenia, Azerbaijan, Costa Rica, and other locales, St. Bartholomew is the or a patron saint of bookbinders, butchers, Florentine cheese and salt merchants. Shout out to the Florentine cheese and salt merchants. We enjoyed your wares very much. Yeah, this oh, summer. A hundred, a hundred percent. They throw just a little bit of uh, big crystally salt on everything, and it's don't it's remind great. me. I want it. Leather workers, neurological diseases, plasterers, shoemakers, couriers, trappers, whiteners, as well as the insult to injury patronages of skin diseases, dermatology, and tanners. And bizarrely, he's also the patron saint of twitching. What do you mean, whiteners? 
Don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like teeth whiteners? I don't know. It's uh, I love when they're connected to all these things that were like invented hundreds of years after they died. Oh, yeah. And we'll talk about more of those, uh, including my own uh, confirmation saint at the end. But next, we're going to also discuss one of my favorite saints, Saint Ledwina. She's a favorite. It's one of my favorite names. Now put that on the baby list. (laughs) Ledwina McCabe. She's a favorite of mine because she's the patron saint of ice skating, my preferred athletic activity, and of chronic illness, my preferred health disorder. (laughs) Uh, Also because her backstory is absolutely just batshit and brutal. Ledwina was a Dutch mystic who lived in Holland during the time of the Ro- Holy Roman Empire from 1380 to her death in 1433. When we say she was a mystic, what do we mean? She you was know, like a wizard? some of these are referred to specifically as mystics, and I think they're the ones that are just the trippiest, really. Which They're like- the ones just experiencing the most wild stuff. They were so gripped in religious belief or fervor that they didn't really have to have like other jobs. Oh, most of them didn't. Yeah. Um, I mean, some of them were like, you know, priests or monks or friars, uh, nuns. Right. But, but in, in those people's Wikipedia page, it would probably say uh, is a uh, 13th century friar who. Well, there are some like I think I talk about a nun later who's also a mystic. I think they have their very like own specific way of worship and i think they kind of developed their own sort of version of the religion for themselves sounds like it reminds me of like a fortune teller or something like a mystic would have a crystal ball and yeah well some of them do have like it said powers of um perception or seeing into the future things like that I was just reading about the, uh, I forget the name of the god, uh, Roman priests of, maybe it was Selene? No, that's the god of the moon, wasn't it? Yeah, Selene. Yeah. Selene, I know. So, so I don't think it was that. No, Selene is from, is from D&D. <laughs> uh, Roman priests of, of something would, uh, they were male priests who would, I guess, maybe castrate themselves in this big festival every uh, year. And, well, you know, you could only do it once, each individual guy. And then after that, they would dress as women and identify as women and, and go around uh, begging for charity and, and telling people's fortunes. It's an interesting Wikipedia rabbit hole you got into there. So they were sort of mystics. <laughs> well, Ledwina's story really begins at age 15 when, while ice skating, she fell and broke a rib. Pretty common stuff. Ice skating, uh, in my opinion, is beneath only American football in like the category of sports that can uh, fuck children up if they take part in them. <laughs> yeah. And certainly even more so in the 1300s, evidenced by the fact that Ledwina never recovered from what would today be considered a pretty minor injury. After this incident, she became progressively more disabled for the rest of her life, thanks in part to gangrene. Hey. And uh, she took time during her convalescence to become devoted to Catholicism. See, Ringo Starr learned the drums. Yeah. What did he have, like polio or something? Ricketts? I don't know. He was bedridden for a long time. And he learned the drums, and she learned... Well... (sighs) (laughs) Not marketable skills, I guess. (laughs) Biographers state that she would eventually become fully paralyzed, aside from her left hand... And that over time, great pieces of her body fell off. 
town records, official town records. I'm sorry, just great pieces? Yes. From the time report that, quote, she shed skin, bones, and even portions of her intestines, which her parents kept in a vase. What? And these gave off a sweet odor until Ledwina insisted her mother bury them. A sweet odor. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a thing, too. That's a thing in what? In some of these stories. Oh, Jesus. It's got, I think it's kind of related to the incorruptibility factor. And like, it's like a step further. It's like, oh, and they even smell good. Yeah. They so don't even smell like nothing. They smell good. What's wrong with her? She just ravaged with infections and parts, pieces of her are falling off. Well, that's very interesting. Uh, she experienced a lot of symptoms. Blood also sometimes poured from her mouth, ears, and nose. She began having visions and became known to the town as a holy woman and healer. One legend states that she ate only the Eucharist for more than 19 years, and this combined with her chronic illness may have given her some sort of power of curing and charity, as she was credited with many miraculous healings over the years, though not her own, of course, and uh, for providing abundant food and nourishment to the needy, which would miraculously multiply or last longer than expected. Now, this is interesting, Sean. You ask, what's wrong with her? Yeah, well, it sounds like she's missing some parts, but but yeah. I want to know why. Ledwina is often credited as one of the first known multiple sclerosis patients due to these untreated symptoms. And many attribute her health problems, especially the paralysis and things like that, um, to the effects of the disease combined with the lasting issues caused by her fall. Now, I feel like the loose parts in question is probably due to that gangrene that set in. Yeah. But, um, you know, the the sort of chronic illness, she had chronic pain and losing of certain faculties. Um, they seem to think that she was probably suffering from a, a form of progressive MS that just, you know, they didn't know what it was. Wow. Ledwina is now patron saint of the chronically ill ice skaters and her hometown, Sheedham. And she died at the age of 52, no doubt due to her plethora of conditions. Did you say mental illness, too? Chronically. Oh, yeah. just chronic. Men- I chronic. mean, it's chronic. Right? Yeah. <laughs> now, next, we're going to kind of do a mini dive into a very well-known saint, due especially to his more recent death and canonization, Saint Pio, also known as Padre Pio. Oh, I've heard of Padre Pio. Exactly. Pio was born to peasant farmers in the southern Italian region of Campania in 1887. He would later say that by the time he turned five, he had already made the decision to devote his life to God. Though he was a sickly boy suffering from gastroenteritis and typhoid fever in his early years, he worked on his family farm until the age of 10 because he got to get out and do that farm work. Even at a young age, he reported experiencing heavenly visions and ecstasies, which uh, we'll talk about a little more later in the episode. But uh, after three years of public school, he decided to devote his life to becoming a friar after hearing a young capuchin friar speak. So this was like a little monkey in a robe? <laughs> that would be very cute. No, I think it was just a guy, no, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, cappuccinos are named after the color of this uh, kind of monk's robe. And capuchin monkeys. Uh, fascinating. They're sweet. 
1903, he officially became a friar and traveled to the friary of St. Francis of Assisi to work on his seven-year study for the priesthood. Here, Pio would often be ill, complaining of lack of appetite, insomnia, exhaustion, fainting spells, and migraines. He vomited frequently and was only able to digest milk and cheese. Well, based on the uh, first story, I'm I'm guessing he's on his way to sainthood, but uh, he's very ill. Yes. Well, he lasted a while after this. It's during this time where inexplicable phenomena surrounding Pio supposedly began. One of Pio's fellow friars later claimed to have witnessed him in ecstasy levitating above the ground, which seems to be a common thing. When we say in ecstasy... We're going to talk about it more, but he's, let's just say he's real, real wrapped up in what he's doing. His toes are curling. Oh, he, and he's levitating off the ground. By 1905, Pio's health had worsened dramatically, but he still took his priest's vows in 1907. Between this time and fall 1918, Pio would give mass, become part of community life in Foggia, and even take on a period of military service during World War I when he was drafted. He couldn't have, I mean, he couldn't have been much of a soldier. Well, he would be continually discharged and recalled again due to his poor health, eventually being discharged completely in March 1918. So, sort of like Tarar. Well, Tarar was eventually turned into a military experiment, but... Right. I don't think P.O.'s eaten any babies. <laughs> but that September is when Padre Pio started displaying the telltale signs of stigmata. Mm-mm-mm. Now, stigmata is a hallmark of many saints' backstories and a particularly brutal experience. Stigmata are bodily wounds, scars, and or pain which appear in locations corresponding to the crucifixion wounds suffered by Jesus Christ. Or indeed uh, by Madonna. (laughs) Now, these would be the palms or wrists, the feet, and near the heart, which are known as the five sacred wounds. Five sacred wounds. Four sacred wounds. Three (laughs) Three sacred sacred wounds. wounds. (laughs) Anyway, sorry. Uh... We're going to hell. As well as uh, you could also get a kind of stigmata on the head, representing the crown of thorns, and on the back from carrying the cross and being whipped. So the people who experience it, they're experiencing kind of physical manifestations of Jesus's passion. And coming along with the pain? Often they'll feel pain. Sometimes they don't. Uh, Or sometimes they only feel like... I feel like I'm being stabbed in my hands, but there's nothing there kind of thing. Some people may even sweat or cry blood, like that guy in Casino Royale. Or like a true blood vampire. (laughs) Yes. To be a true stigmatic, these wounds appear apropos of nothing and are not caused by obvious outside sources, including the sufferer themselves. So if you fall on something sharp and you pierce your palms, you're not a stigmatic, you're just very clumsy. (laughs) A high percentage, likely over 80% of all stigmatics are women, which is very interesting. Mm -hmm. In his book, uh, Stigmata, a Medieval Phenomenon in a Modern Age, author Ted Harrison suggests that there's no single mechanism whereby the marks of stigmata were produced. What is important is that the marks are recognized by others as of religious significance. Basically, what they mean to other people makes them meaningful. It's like what I was saying about ancient history. Pretty much. Like, well, it doesn't matter if it's magical. Yeah, but if people believe it, it's kind of the same thing. Yeah. St. Francis of Assisi is the first known recorded stigmatic, and none were 
at least recorded to have existed before the 13th century. Francis's stigmata was received during an apparent apparition of a seraphic angel while in a religious ecstasy in 1224. There's that word again. Interestingly, Francis's friary was the one that Padre Pio had studied at. Um, so, he, you know, he really knew Francis's story, and that was a big part of his story. So maybe... little inspiration. Maybe it's an inspiration. Pio's stigmata uh, was presented on his hands and feet and pretty much became permanent after they emerged in September 1918. Like he's continuously bleeding from his hands and feet? At least continuously open wounds, which is crazy. Uh, His reputation grew quickly soon after the stigmata was revealed, attracting hundreds of believers to the monastery each day just to see him. And he was seen as a symbol of hope by others who were also rebuilding their lives after the end of World War I, kind of related to him. Those close to him attested that he began to manifest several spiritual gifts as well after his stigmata, including the gifts of healing, bilocation, being seen in two places at once, levitation, a classic, Prophecy, miracles, the ability to read hearts. Um, so maybe he's just like a really good judge of character. Oh, I was going to say that's way less convenient than palms. It takes a lot, <laughs> lot more work to get. He there. can't read the palms. I mean, look at his own; they're all messed up. <laughs> yeah, it would be insulting to. Uh, and he got a really great jump shot too, right? <laughs> Air PO, <laughs> uh, the gift of tongues, the gift of conversions. And the gift of pleasant-smelling wounds. What is the gift of conversions? He's really good at converting people. Well, sure. (laughs) Look, look, I'm bleeding from my hands like Christ. And they're like, oh, okay. Um, But yeah, he had pleasant-smelling wounds, uh, often smelling like perfume or flowers. So again, we got that good smell stuff coming in. Uh, I guess that's a good thing if you're actively bleeding out of your hands and feet 24-7. You don't want to smell like an old blood bag well you definitely don't want it to smell like it would be a bad medical sign if it would uh, if it smells really off you know but it would also be a bad medical sign probably for it to smell like febreze <laughs> when your blood's coming out oh is that a is that a glade plug-in oh no it's just pio's feet oh springtime fresh <laughs> He also demonstrated extraordinary abstinence from both sleep and nourishment, with one account stating that Pio was able to subsist for at least 20 days at Verafeno on only the Holy Eucharist without any other nourishment. Mm, Which is a common thing. Yeah, but, yeah. A common attribution, I will say. No, I know, but 20 days, you know. It's no 19 years with Ladwina. Yeah, it's no, exactly, (laughs) honestly, exactly. It's no 19 years. He's also eating Eucharist, and uh, I think it takes you like almost a month to starve. Now, I I wanted to include this story not only because he is such a famous recent saint, but also because it kind of turns into a bit of a true crime mystery at this point. Padre Pio's stigmata was reported as continuous for over 50 years. And it was studied by several contemporary physicians, though their independence from church influence is not always known. Meaning they were all Catholics? Uh, Some were, and some weren't, and some were, but were skeptical of him. So it's very interesting. None of the physicians could come to a definitive conclusion about the origin of the wounds, aside from some inferences like they were not tubercular in origin. 
and did not show evidence of edema, penetration, or bone structure abnormalities. Penetration? Like nothing had pushed into his hand to create them? It didn't look like that because it. I guess you can kind of tell if something, if the skin's pushed down. Oh, you so know? this sounds like it's a, so it's a very shallow, perfectly circular. I don't think it's perfectly circular. I think he, this guy was just playing Mario Party on the original <laughs> Mario Party on N64. <laughs> yeah, you would have to spin <laughs> that joystick. The wounds apparently never became infected in all of that time. And like we said, boy, did they smell great. Well, this is this. So he's obviously spraying a little, a little bit of a glade. In there. <gasps> God, that must have hurt. The wounds did heal once in that whole span, but reappeared and continued through his death in the late 60s. Some critics, both religious and non-religious, accused Pio of faking the stigmata. Sorry, the late 60s or his late 60s? The late 60s. The 1960s. Um, but yeah, they, they accused him of faking it, using carbolic acid to cause the wounds, which would effectively have made them chemical burns and not penetrative wounds. Historian Sergio Luzzato recorded recounted that in 1919, according to one document in the Vatican's archive, Pio had indeed requested carbolic acid from a pharmacist. Oh, geez. Who, what did he say it was for? Uh, the pharmacist reported that the request was for sterilizing syringes used for vaccination. So keep in mind, this is around the time of the, the great flu. Mm-hmm. Um, Maria De Vito, the cousin of the local pharmacist in question, Valentini Vista at uh, Foggia, had testified that the young Pio bought carbolic acid and a large quantity of four grams of veritrine, quote, without presenting any medical prescription whatsoever and in great secret. Uh, okay. So veritrine is a mixture of alkaloids, a highly caustic product, um, as the pharmacist stated in front of witnesses, veritrine is so poisonous that only a, d a doctor can decide whether to prescribe it. Veritrine was once used as a paralyzing muscle insecticide, primarily against lice, but was also described by pharmacists as an external stimulant that renders one insensitive to pain. Oh, okay. As I mentioned, though, Pio swore that the purchase of the carbolic acid was strictly for sterilization. Oh, well, if he swore. And the veritrine was for pulling some practical jokes. <laughs> okay, so this highly poisonous veritrine? Quote, after being subjected to a practical joke where veritrine was mixed with snuff tobacco, causing uncontrollable sneezing after ingestion, he decided to acquire his own quantity of the substance in order to play the same joke on his confreres. So he's he's just using some sneezing powder on some tricksters. Well, these these um, I I didn't picture these like kind of robed monks walking around with snuff boxes. Just <laughs> you gotta keep things interesting. The Bishop of Volterra, a.k.a. the town where the vampire royalty live in the Twilight series, Sean, because this is important information. It, yeah, sure. Just like the one in the chamber uh, point. Important information. Edward, one in the chamber. Oh, oh my God. Uh, but yeah, Michael Sheen. Well, let's just let's imagine him as the Bishop of Volterra here. I always do. <laughs> um, he said of the findings that, quote, instead of malice, what is revealed here is instead of malice. <laughs> what is revealed here is Padre Pio's simplicity and his playful spirit. 
and that, quote, the stigmata at issue are not a work of the devil, nor a gross deceit, a fraud, the trick of a devious and malicious person. His stigmata do not seem to be a morbid product of external suggestion. And he saw these stigmata as a real fact. So he had, Padre Pio had his supporters. However, Uh (laughs) physician and psychologist Father Agostino Gemelli came to the same conclusion regarding carbolic acid in the early 1920s after being commissioned by Cardinal Raphael Mary DeVal to visit the friar and carry out a clinical examination of the wounds. So this is a priest a hired priest by the Vatican. Sent by priests to be like, we got to check this guy out. Yeah. Sniff those wounds. See how they smell. It's Glade, sir. <laughs> Lavender vanilla, sir. <laughs> Jamelli's is an interesting perspective. He was a Franciscan friar. You would think he would have had skin in the game, no pun intended, to prove Pio's stigmata. Um, but according to Wikipedia, which gathered the evidence presented in the book Padre Pio, Miracles and Politics in a Secular Age by Sergio Luzzato, quote, Pio showed a closed attitude toward the new investigator, the Uh, father. He refused the visit, requesting the written authorization of the Holy Office. Father Gemelli's protests that he believed he had the right to subject the friar to a medical examination of the stigmata were in vain. The friar, supported by his superiors, conditioned the examination to a permit requested through the hierarchy without taking into account the credentials of Father Agostino Gemelli. So basically, you're not good enough I want it from the top. If it doesn't come from the top, yeah, and and of course his bosses are getting all these all these visitors and all these donations because of the bleeding guy. Mm-hmm. So Jamelli left. Uh, he was irritated and offended for not being allowed to examine the stigmata, and came to the conclusion that Pio was quote a man of restricted field of knowledge, low psychic energy, monotonous ideas, little volition. Read her, honey. Oh my God, the library is open. Gemelli critically judged Pio, quote, the case is one of suggestion unconsciously planted by Father Benedetto in the weak mind of Padre Pio. Ouch. So Wh- Benedetto was like his spiritual superior, his mentor. The, the and, guy who's And saying, a guy who's like, this guy's for real. Mm-hmm. But Gemelli is saying he just kind of like. He's using this kind of weak-minded priest yes. to bring in the donations. Yeah. Well, I don't know about the donations, but I'm sure that's part of it. Uh, producing these characteristic manifestations of seasism, I assume stigmata, uh, that are intrinsic to the hysteric mind. On behalf of the Holy Office, Gemelli re-examined Pio in 1925, writing a report in April 1926. This time, Pio allowed him to see the wounds. Gemelli saw as its cause the use of a corrosive substance that Pio had applied himself to these wounds. So he's thinking it's, you know, chemical burns. Yeah. And the only thing I'll say to that, I mean, you know, he, he might have had that in his head already because he probably knows about the carbolic acid thing. Um, yes. But, but honestly, I, I, you know, I probably fall more on the side of this is a carbol- carbolic acid thing anyway. Again, as pretty much most of the people stated, it didn't look like something had penetrated the wounds. So a chemical burn does make sense in terms of making a wound that doesn't close and doesn't 
isn't caused by some like sharp object, you know? Right. Or again, that mini game where you're trying to blow up Mario's <laughs> head real big. Are you saying you had stigmata as a child? I'm, I'm Is there just, something I need to know? On just my left hand where I uh, uh, twisted that, that joystick? Yeah. I'm not even going to touch that one. Persistently, I would say for years. <laughs> we played a lot of Mario Party. Wait, is that I, what you call it? Mario Party? I just might be a saint. That's all I'm saying. Uh-huh. The Jesuit uh, had previously tried to qu- question Jamelli's comments on stigmata in general. Jamelli responded to this criticism in his report and resorted to responding to his knowledge of self-inflicted wounds. He therefore clarified his statements about the nature of Pio's wounds. Quote, anyone with experience in forensic medicine and above all in variety by sores and wounds that self-destructive soldiers were presented during the war can have no doubt that these were wounds of erosion caused by the use of a caustic substance. So he seems to be hinting that maybe he experienced people with acid wounds in the war and he's like oh and, and i could use this i i thought implied self-inflicted wounds like people would burn themselves maybe with acid to try to get out of could also be that going to the front line mm-hmm. but Pio might have seen people either way who had experienced these things once again Jamelli judged Pio's mental abilities as limited referencing his relationship with father benedetto quote Pio is the ideal partner with whom former minister pr- provincial Father Benedetto is able to create an incubus succubus pair. This is coming from a Franciscan friar. Wow. He so- is a good priest, calm, quiet, meek, more because of the mental deficiency than out of virtue. A poor soul able to repeat a few stereotypical religious phrases, a poor sick man who has learned his lesson from his master, Father Benedetto. Wow. So, th- I mean, that paints... You know, uh, this sort of puppet master is is forcing this simple man, simple man, to just injure himself every day. Jamelli wrote in 1940 and later several times to the Holy Office what he considered to be unjustified claims to the sanctity of Pio. So he believed this for the rest of his days that Pio was a fraud. Well, I think we should lay the fraud at uh, his his boss's feet, but uh, but yeah. Italian physician, pathologist, and skeptic Amico Bignami wrote that he felt Pio's wounds were caused by ne- neurotic necrosis, a sort of combo pack of mental and physical disorders. Um, he felt that the wounds had become begun unconsciously by suggestion, maybe due to Pio always being around the legacy of Francis of Assisi, and then artificially maintained over the years by iodine, which Pio used as a disinfectant and also looks kind of bloody. Well, I mean, it's like clear, isn't it? Or brown? It's like a brownish red. Hmm. However, Giorgia Festa, who examined the stigmata in 1919, wrote in his report that They were not a product of trauma of external origin, nor were they due to the application of potentially irritating chemicals. Based on what? His opinion. So so what were they based on? I mean, I think he was a physician, so I guess his opinion, his his doctor's opinion. No, so what did he think they came from? Uh... You know, like Christ, I guess. <laughs> like, I mean, I, in, in my medical opinion, the heavens. Uh, this this looks like radiant damage. <laughs> radiant damage. 
Others in high places of Vatican power were that were skeptical of the truth of Pio's stigmata included Pope John the 23rd, uh, who called Father Pio a straw idol in his private diary, and Secretary General of the Diocese of Rome, Father Carlo Macari, who called Pio supporters a vast and dangerous organization. Oh, geez. So right at the top. Yeah. Though not always. But on September 22nd, 1968, Padre Pio, despite his declining health, celebrated Mass to commemorate the 50th anniversary of his receiving of the stigmata, which sounds like it was a heck of a party. Yeah, I mean, you're going to have to throw that Bible out afterward, though. It's going to be a mess. Stigmata party. After, put your hands in the air. Everyone's kind of too ashamed. I mean, you know, when Padre Pio's hands are in the air. Raise them like the palms ain't there. Jesus. (laughs) After the mass concluded, he nearly collapsed while walking down the altar steps, and this would be his last celebration of mass. He passed away early the next morning after making his last confession and renewing his Franciscan vows. Strangely, especially considering the celebratory mass the day before, the stigmata had actually disappeared from Pio's body a few days before he died, and doctors examining his his corpse reported that the wounds were not only completely healed, but there was no trace or scar of them left. So... I mean, do we think Father Benedetto bumped him off? That's my question. Well, I don't even know if Benedetto was alive at this point. He's an old man now. Yeah. But in the later part of the 20th century and earlier part of the 21st, the popes became more amenable to Pio's story, with Pope John Paul II especially venerating Pio even while he was a young priest in the 1940s, when Pio was very much still alive. JP2 believed in Pio Stigmata, calling it an example of the, quote, intimate bond between death and resurrection, and a sharing of, quote, the passion with a special intensity, the unique gifts which were given to him, and the interior and mystical sufferings which accompanied them allowed him to constantly participate in the Lord's agonies. Pio was canonized by Paul, or John Paul, in February of 2002, and became the patron saint of civil defense volunteers, adolescents, and very relevant for me, stress relief and the January blues, which is a very hilarious specification. The January blues? It's basically seasonal affective disorder, but specifically January, I guess. I mean, you know, there's 10,000 of these guys. They're running out of things to assign to them, I guess. Uh, He's the patron saint of uh, knee replacement surgery. (laughs) And, 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 hold on, we can do it. Um, And uh, favorable Pokemon traits. (laughs) Padre Pio was exhumed from four decades in his crypt in March 2008, so his remains could be prepared for display, with a church statement saying that the body was in fair condition which seems to be not quite good enough to put a corpse on exhibit, but what do I know? (laughs) Archbishop Domenico Umberto D'Ambrosio stated that, quote, the top part of the skull is partly skeletal, but the chin is perfect, and the rest of the body is well-preserved. That chin is great. It's a great chin. You're only seeing partial skull here, folks. There's no biggie. I mean, we're all here for the palms. How are the palms? (laughs) They're healed, remember? Yeah, you know, we just got to throw them behind some glass. Well... 
it seems that morticians were not able to restore his face uh, just based on that perfect chin. Was this like a monkey Christ situation? Did they do a bad job? Well, it was covered by a lifelike silicone mask, which gives me like Count Von Kosel vibes and seems like it would have possibly been even more ghoulish than just seeing an old skull. Um, Because I just don't think that mid-2000s silicone maskery was quite up to snuff yet. So he looks like um, Ryan Gosling in Drive at, at the end of Drive. <laughs> Pictures of the Padre during this time on display aren't super detailed. So it's hard to tell what it would have been like to be up close and personal with the 40-year-old corpse that was only in, again, fair condition. But here's here's like a, a crowd shot. By the way, the 40-year-old corpse is my least favorite Jet Apatow film. <laughs> my most favorite, to be honest. You know, I think he looks pretty good. It, it, you're right. It's hard to tell whether um, how ghoulish it would yes. appear up close and personal. Now, some saints, however, are known for their incorruptibility, which is the remarkable way their body seems to not have decayed at all post-death. And after the break, we'll talk about some of these fresh and crisp corpses, as well as holy relics attributed to saints that are still worshipped today. Speaking of Von Kosel, keep him away from these guys. going to love it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back. When last we left you, Carrie had just fired the opening shots in her... It feels to me like an ongoing war against Padre Pio and his supporters. (laughs) I mean, you really opened up there. Listen, this isn't about the war on Pio, okay? This is about the war on Christmas. You're right. I'm sorry. Let's talk about... I I can't get a beat on where you are politically. I'm all over the map. Let's talk about those saints' bodies that haven't rotted at all. Because that's fun. That is just very fun. Numbered a little over 100 at this point, these saints are referred to as the Incorruptibles, (laughs) which would be a perfect name for like a dope Catholic crime-fighting team of reanimated cadavers if the Vatican had any guts. John Paul II, (laughs) Mother Teresa. (laughs) According to Roman-Catholic-Saints.com, which seems as good a source as any, quote, The incorruptibles are saints whose bodies are miraculously preserved after death, defying the normal process of decomposition. Saint Cecilia is probably the first saint known to be incorrupt, but the bodies of these saints can be found in many places throughout the world. They are not like mummies, for their skin is soft and their limbs pliable, nothing at all like the dry skeletal remains of what we know as mummies. I don't want to know how they're checking on that pliability. (laughs) She's limber. Under usual circumstances, nothing at all 
has been done to preserve the bodies of these saints. In fact, some of them have been covered in quicklime, which should have easily destroyed any human remains, yet it has no effect on these saints. Many of them also give <laughs> they, off... They do like... You know, <laughs> you know when they test Apple laptops and they like back a car yeah. over them and stuff? They've done that with these saints. Of course, you got to. Many of them also give off, say it with me, Sean, a sweet, a sweet unearthly, unearthly odor. odor. And others produce blood or oils that defy any scientific explanation. Modern science relegates the incorruptibles to the status of mummies, pretending it understands and can comfortably categorize these saints. Drag her, RomanCatholicSaints.com. <laughs> the Vatican archives are open. <laughs> Unlike real life, when they're generally closed, but we'll talk about that in like Vatican Conspiracies Part 2. So is, the, so is there a... Um... Is there a running theory that somebody secretly mummified these people? Um, I don't know about like, I mean, maybe some of them, but mostly it just seems like they feel that the circumstances of preservation were such that it preserved the bodies. Um, kind of like Mercy Brown. She was, you know, the, the New England vampire. They thought she was a vampire because she had a rod in it all, but they also buried her in the winter. In the winter. So she, you know, she was just kind of frozen. She was just frozen. So. But some of these have lasted centuries um, without rotting. So it's, it's interesting. There are a bunch of saints that are called incorruptible, but we'll start with one that also has a wild backstory from life too, Saint Agatha. Agatha of Sicily, which means I, I, well, I could be a distant cousin somewhere back in the family <laughs> sure. tree. Uh, she lived between 231 and 251 AD. So you already know her life was cut very short. And it was. She was martyred, one of the several virgin martyrs commemorated by name in the canon of the Mass. But we'll get to her martyrdom in a minute. According to the hagiographies known as the Golden Legend by Jacobus de Voragine, written in the 13th century, 15-year-old Agatha made a vow of virginity rejecting the advances of Roman prefect Quintanius. Quintianus. Uh, bad news as the daughter of a rich and noble family. Yeah, but a, a prefect. Let's say her dad was probably pretty upset. <laughs> Quintianus thought he could force her to recant her vows and marry him, but Agatha continuously turned down his proposals. Well, this pissed Quintanius off, and so he decided that she should be punished because she didn't want to deal with his dumbass for the rest of her life. Typical guy. As this occurred during the Christian persecutions of Decius, Quintianus, who was, uh, happened to be governor of the district, reported Agatha to the authorities, knowing that as an unabashed Christian, she would be disciplined. What he expected was that she would be told she could die, maybe tortured a little bit, and that would turn her right around and make her accept him with open arms. But Agatha wasn't having it. Yeah, sure, a lightly used wife. To force her to change her mind, speaking of lightly used, Quintian, Quintianus sent Agatha to Aphrodisia, the keeper of a brothel, and had her imprisoned there to try and, I don't know, like, prostitute her or something? Aphrodisia? Yeah. That, I don't know. <laughs> However, don't know the, the punishment failed. Agatha remained a Christian. So he was sick of dealing with this. Quintianus brought Agatha back, threatened her, and finally imprisoned her for torture. Agatha, still only a teenager, was stretched on a rack with iron hooks, 
burned with torches, whipped, and her breasts were torn off with tongs. What? This final messed up scene is lovingly depicted in a stained glass piece that remains in Rouen Cathedral in Normandy, France. So imagine looking up and seeing that during your Sunday mass. What a beautiful window. Up oh, and there it oh and that's exactly what they're doing. Mm-hmm. That he doesn't look psyched about what he's doing either. He's kind of like <laughs> it's, it's a living. <laughs> it's been a day. Yeah, I don't think that's Quintianus. I think that's, you know, the Some torturer. Guy. <laughs> yeah. It seems Agatha somehow still hung on to life after that. So after further confrontation with Quintianus, Agatha was sentenced to be burnt at the stake. Then in a pit of possible divine intervention that should have made even a jerk like Quintianus have a second thought, an earthquake prevented her burning, literally interrupted the proceedings. So she was thrown into a prison. It is said that during her imprisonment, St. Peter the Apostle appeared to her and healed her wounds. However, Agatha did die in prison at about age 20, and her martyrdom has been authenticated, though there isn't 100% reliable information concerning the details of her death. St. Agatha today is the patron saint of rape victims, breast cancer patients, wet nurses, and bell founders. Who are those who cast large bronze bells in a foundry? Now, why is she a patron saint of bell uh, founders? Yeah, I don't get that one. Apparently, this is due to the shape of her severed breasts Being... resembling these bells. Jesus, Jesus Christ. Christ. It is so wild to me that so many of the saints are patrons of, like, horrible reminders of their tortures and deaths. Well, in, in a lot of cases, that's the, like... I don't want to say the best part of the story, but the most remembered part of the story and yeah. the interesting part of the story. Yeah. In that same vein, she is also considered to be a powerful intercessor when people suffer from fires because her own fiery death was interrupted. Um, she's also the patron saint of Italy, along with other places uh, of bakers, jewelers, martyrs. So I'm sure there's a lot of patron saints of martyrs. You would think. Sufferers of sterility, victims of torture and natural, natural disasters, and volcanic eruptions. Her holy symbols are... I guess, wait, so earthquakes was already taken, or? Oh, no, earthquakes is part of the natural disasters kind of All right. umbrella. Her holy symbols are pincers and breasts on a plate. Breasts on a plate? Straight up breasts on a plate. Again, imagine turning some undead with that. Yeah. According to the 1977 book, The Incorruptibles, by Joan Carol Cruz, quote, The incorrupt body of St. Agatha was transferred to Constantinople in the 11th century, and then returned to Catania, Sicily. The body is now preserved in different reliquaries. The arms, legs, and breasts are preserved in a glass case in an incorrupt condition, although rather dried and dark after more than 17 centuries. So just some loose loose titties in a jar. Her pulled-off breasts. Yeah. The skull and principal relics are at Catania, enclosed in an effigy on which rests a costly jeweled crown. The reliquary consists of the figure of the saint from the head to the waist and is situated in an upright position. The figure is entirely covered with precious gems, rings, bracelets, pins, chains, and jeweled flowers and crosses. Except you can see... You can see them titties. 
Well, those are just kind of loose to the side. Oh, they're not part of the figure. This is the figure sort of more of a Von Cosell sort of situation. A, a tri- This is not the real uh, St. Agatha. This is just a tribute, you know. Um, but she, her loose pieces are kind of like in the diorama. Yes, I understand. Because we, I asked because we saw St. John's uh, finger bone. And it was in like a glove as if it was part of his hand. That was my favorite. Like we went to the Duomo and um, they had this little museum room of just all holy relics. And I I was obsessed with this room. I wanted to stay in there the whole time because it's so interesting. They have these little pieces like, oh, it's, you know, St. Matthew's ear or whatever. And they're like crusted in jewels. They had somebody's veil. That wasn't St. Agatha's veil. That sounds like an awesome like metal band name. Um, I don't know. I have to look back at my pictures because I was just snapping away at all these. These mm-hmm. were really cool. We saw se- there were several tooths of Jane, uh, St. John the Baptist. Yeah, some loose fingers. Um, it was really awesome. Because, I don't know, it was cool. I don't know. Yeah, it's like <laughs> you, 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 would, you would want that room in your house. I'm working on it. <laughs> my mom actually had a... Um, a Saint's necklace. Bone? No, she had like a relic, uh, like a like a tiny little fragment of cloth from some saint. I need to find it because I want it. Mm. I used to like stare at it as a kid. Like this is holy Catholicism. Another incorruptible saint who we would have covered anyway due to some wild details of her story is Saint Teresa of Avila, a par- prominent Carmelite nun, Spanish mystic, and a religious reformer. Teresa was born in 1515 and was brought up as a devout Christian in the Castile region and decided to enter the local Carmelite convent of the Incarnation at age 20. And soon after, Teresa would find her true passion, mortification. Um, Mortification is uh, whipping yourself? Yes. So for the listeners, this doesn't mean she had like a, a fetish for embarrassment. Yeah, she 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 was always showing up for class uh, <laughs> naked. <laughs> uh, mortification of the flesh can have a few meanings. So at its most like sort of basic, general, easy to accept, you know, it, you can start with just denying yourself certain pleasures, abstaining from certain food, alcohol, sex, a wealthy lifestyle, uh, many like people who take vows of poverty, chastity, they're taking part in a kind of mortification. But if it, in its more severe forms, Teresa's favorite, it can mean using an instrument of penance, like a whip, to flagellate or beat yourself. Teresa apparently found a, quote, zeal for mortification <laughs> and took part so much that she became ill from her injuries and spent almost a year in bed nearly dying before her recovery. She it, just loved whipping herself. Oddly, she did learn the drums while she was recovering. <laughs> yeah, but the drums were on her back. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, she was great at beating. Around this time, she began to experience bouts of religious ecstasy. And now, there's that word we're again. We're here. We've mentioned ecstasy before. We're not talking about just like super happiness or a 90s rave drug. Uh, religious ecstasy is a type of altered state of consciousness characterized by greatly reduced external awareness and reportedly expanded interior mental and spiritual awareness, not brought on by drugs, religiously based, 
frequently accompanied by visions and emotional, sometimes physical euphoria. When we talk about physical euphoria... It's open to interpretation, I think. Okay. Along those lines, Teresa's most famous ecstasy is the reason that I kind of knew her story off the top of my head. It was depicted in an incredibly famous statue by the renowned sculptor Gian Lorenzo Bernini and is available to view in the Santa Maria della Vittoria in Rome. Oh, I think I've seen this one. She literally, her toes are curling in this statue, right? It's a lot. Let's actually, like, her eyes are rolled back. Uh, her mouth's open. Oh, uh, yeah. And, of course, it's artistic license. Ber- you know, Bernini wasn't there. Right. Who Who is that Who is that angel? I don't know if it's a specific angel, but it is an angel. So the sculpture depicts a vision of an angel that Teresa described in her autobiography, The, Lice- the Life of Teresa of Jesus, as follows. Quote, I saw in his hand a long spear of gold, and at the iron's point there seemed to be a little fire. He appeared to me to be thrusting it at times into my heart and to pierce my very entrails. When he drew it out, he seemed to draw them out also, her entrails, and to leave me all on fire with a great love of God. The pain was so great that it made me moan, and yet so surpassing was the sweetness of this excessive pain that I could not wish to be rid of it. The soul is satisfied now with nothing less than God. The pain is not bodily but spiritual, though the body has its share in it. It is a caressing of love so sweet, which now takes place between the soul and God, that I pray God of his goodness to make him experience it who may think that I am lying. So she's sort of like a John Cougar Mellencamp. Hurt so good. <laughs> Come on, angel, make it hurt so good. Sure thing. And in between these, she's just whipping away at her back. I think at this in in this part, she's just kind of like, like she's just sort of feeling it. Yeah. I don't think she's actively doing anything. Right, but in between her, you she's know, definitely working on it. Yeah. In between her wet dreams of being stabbed, <laughs> she is uh, uh, just beaten on her back with a whip. If you found that description well a little sexual, that's almost part of the point. Teresa gave a a sort of prescription of four stages of mystical prayer in her book, the first being the relatively normal, I guess, devotion of the heart and devotion of peace. But when we get to the third, devotion of union, um, this is what she calls an ecstatic state where one is basically absorbed into God, losing all reason, experiencing blissful peace. And then past that, like the final stage is the devotion of ecstasy. The consciousness of being in the body completely disappears. Sensory faculties cease to operate, and all memory and imagination is absorbed in God. Teresa described this as the culmination of all mystical experience. The statue of the ecstasy of St. Teresa has been depicted and referenced many times in art, but I've got to mention it as an apparent inspiration for a shot in the quite rough A Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child. Oh! <laughs> because high art and low art sometimes are closer than you may think. Uh, what shot would that be? Uh, we were watching that Nightmare on Elm Street series documentary, and the director of that one said that he was inspired by that statue, particularly when he's shooting, uh, what's her face? The mother of the dream child. 
Oh yeah, and uh, she has she's experiencing some kind of like divine ecstasy. <laughs> it's like, but from Freddy, this is Nightmare on Elm Street Five. No, this is when she defeats Freddy. So she's, I guess, it's like an intercession of God. I don't know. I don't think he even knew. The memory of her ecstatic episode served as an inspiration throughout the rest of her life and motivated her long, her lifelong imitation of the life of, and suffering of Jesus, summed up in the saying often associated with her, Lord. Either let me suffer or let me die. Metal. Despite this and her illnesses, she lived until 1582, where she died a natural death. Teresa was chopped up. Uh, she was chopped up? <laughs> Teresa was chopped up for relic parts over the years, <laughs> uh, with Rome eventually getting her right foot and part of her upper jaw, Lisbon getting her hand. So maybe we can go see that when we... Uh, Go to Portugal eventually. Go to the homeland. Spain, getting a whole bunch of her in different places. Her left eye, left hand, left arm, separate. Um, a single finger and her heart. And Paris uh, also got another finger. Throw him a finger. Yeah, sure. Give him a thrill. <laughs> <laughs> she was exhumed in 1585 and found incorrupt. This is when the arm was actually removed to leave as a souvenir with some Spanish nuns because they were taking the original relic away was the hand. So it was kind of a consolation prize. Sure. Is that, you know what? You can have the whole arm. Is How it, about that? Is, it, is that still incorrupt? <sighs> you know, I don't know. A lot of these are like crusted with jewels. So I'm sure it's hard to say. She is the or a patron saint of Spain. Sick people, people in religious orders, chess. People ridiculed for their piety, lace makers, and other various locations. Chess? Chess. 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 Did she play? Maybe. (laughs) I'm going to throw a pretty weird story in here because I think it's fun. Oh, finally, a weird story. (laughs) In the article, 101 Uses for the Sacred Foreskin in The Guardian, which is... Definitely one of the weirder links I've ever clicked on. Yeah, I mean, that that's going to haunt your search history forever. <laughs> mm. I, and I would love to see the banner ads you're getting. Oh, God. Author Mark Abrahams uh, details a study called The Circumcision of Jesus Christ, which focuses on what happened to Jesus' foreskin, called the, uh, the Holy Preface, during and after biblical times. <laughs> now, if you're a Patreon subscriber, you've actually heard me talk about the Holy Preface before, which sure. I can't believe I've done twice in three years. I can. <laughs> I had a nickel. Um, I won't go into all the stories surrounding it, because I, I don't want to. But also, just you know, join the Patreon if you're dying for all that foreskin info. But I will mention its relation to St. Catherine of Siena. St. Catherine believed that she had experienced a mystical marriage wedding ceremony to Jesus Christ himself in the presence of the Virgin Mary, in which she consecrated herself and her virginity to her husband, Jesus. During the ceremony, Catherine said that she received Jesus's holy preface as a, a wedding ring. See, now this is what I should have thought of when I was doing the whole proposal oh, thing. God. No one could see it but her, you know, afterwards. Invisible. She's like, I'm wearing the foreskin. Invisible but, preface. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, it's really for the best that no one can see it. I don't know. Yeah, I agree. Now, uh, she, like, wasn't she, like, constantly drinking other people's blood and tumors and stuff? You know, I was literally the next sentence. 
not for the best was her penchant for drinking the pus mm. of wounded and sick patients uh, that she nursed as an act of humility. St. Catherine of Siena is also said to have experienced stigmata, but this was also visible only to herself, apparently at her request. Does it count? Does it count if you're the only one who can see the stigmata? No, but I mean, as long as the angels are taking requests, you know, like, play Freebird. Kidding, <laughs> <laughs> kidding. To wrap up, we're going to go on a quick romp through some of the most brutal martyrdoms and weirdest little facts I found in my journey through Catholicism. Because this is really, again, only scratching the surface of this bizarre and tragic and somewhat beautiful millennia-long history of this religion. Mm -hmm. St. Lawrence was roasted alive over hot coals in the year 258 by a Roman prefect, pissed off that uh, Lawrence was giving his church's wealth to the poor instead of the Roman government, which you may notice is exactly what the church is actually supposed to do. After suffering calmly and gracefully, uh, it is claimed that Lawrence joked to his persecutors, I'm well done. Turn me over. Now, this guy. <laughs> you gotta laugh. This guy fucks. This guy's great. I guess he probably Probably didn't. done. But, you know, the energy's there. Though some modern historians feel it more likely that Lawrence was beheaded, he remains the patron saint of cooks to this day, which is messed up. Yeah, why do they keep doing that? Along with poor people, firefighters, students... Tanners and miners. Several Christian martyrs were baked alive in brazen bowls, including Saint Antipas. And uh, as a reminder, I think we might have mentioned this before, but brazen bowls were hollow bronze statues of you know bowls. Uh, you would be put in these, shut inside, and they were set over a fire, and it roasted you inside of this bowl. And that's ironic because. Um you know, if there's one thing you really don't have to cook, it's an antipas. Oh, Saint Antipas. <laughs> uh, I'm proud, though. I'm proud. That's a very Italian-American joke. Saint Eulalia was rolled down a hill in a knife-filled barrel. Yoy! <laughs> so, put that in your pipe and smoke it. That is tough. It's like some sort of medieval Knievel. I mean, why... <laughs> Why go to the, the, the Dr. Evil of it all? Do you know what I mean? Well, especially because she was only 13 years old. Okay, so like you can probably handle just stabbing her. Not much is known of her story, though the legend of her death was obviously horrific. It is said that Roman Emperor Diocletian ordered her to endure 13 tortures, one for each year of her life, which should remind you she's a child, for refusing to recant her Christianity. One of the most violent was called St. Eulalia's Descent, which is certainly a word for it. They all had little names? She was placed into a barrel of either knives or broken glass and rolled down a hill or street. Like, you know, uh, the Cheez-It commercials with the, <laughs> the cheese wheels. <laughs> yeah. Other tortures included severe beatings, having her breasts chopped off, because they really loved that, and crucifixion on an X-shaped cross. Again, being the, the John Wick of Catholic history, what actually killed this child, according to her legend, is decapitation. And after her you head rolled... What's a vampire? <laughs> after her head rolled to the ground, a white dove supposedly flew out of her mouth or neck. Wow, so her execution was directed by John Woo? Hey. <laughs> Remember we talked about one saint symbol being breasts on a plate, Sean? Yeah. Don't tell me there's a sec. This one's also breasts on a plate. Well, have you met eyes on a plate? Oh. 
Pacasius, governor of Syracuse in the year 304, was stymied by a young girl named Lucy's refusal to renounce her Christian faith. He ordered her to be forced into defilement at a brothel. Again, they love doing that. But even a team of oxen was unable to carry her away to her punishment. Picassius's uh, guards then tried to light her on fire, but the wood wouldn't burn. Finally, they gouged out her eyeballs. Uh, then she was eventually killed by a sword to the neck. Some versions of the story say that she actually gouged out her own eyes before her death uh, to disgust a suitor that wouldn't stop admiring them, <laughs> which is pretty baller. That's, that is metal. <laughs> like, no, you can't have them and no one can. You know, I don't even want them. St. Lucy was traditionally depicted in religious artwork with, say it with me, a pair of eyes. away from Charlie Brown. What? On a plate. Oh, that makes sense. And lastly, we have our boy St. Denis, Saint Denis. He was the bishop of Paris in the third century and very good at converting people to Christianity throughout the region. Local pagans were not a fan of this and beheaded Denis. That'll put an end to it. Well, no, because Denny uh, was not going to be stopped by a little decapitation, and he reportedly picked up his own head and walked six miles, delivering a sermon the entire way, which I feel like is kind of how you would go, Sean, if you were martyred. Yeah, a little more talking. <laughs> yeah, the pagans are like, this Dennis, he's a menace. Uh, and guess what? Uh, San Denis is now the patron saint of headaches because why do they always do that? This well, one's pretty funny, though. Oh, I thought it was because he, because like, will you please stop talking? <laughs> Someday we'll talk more about some weird and wild saints, including the far too extensive for this episode story of Joan of Arc. But what do you think, Sean? Who is your favorite? Uh, my favorite of those... I think you got to give Catherine style points for the, you know, there's a real boldness to, if you're going to like make up a bunch of nonsense uh, to eventually become a, a saint. Okay. Well, that's your opinion. You know, Padre Pio uh, went through all of this work of burning his hands and stuff. She just had to say she saw stuff. Um, apparently she was very convincing. Maybe. And maybe she did. I, 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 I've, I've read into that story a little bit before. I, I think she, uh, there was a lot going on with that, uh, with that young girl. Yeah. Yeah. Who is the saint that you chose for your confirmation, fellow reformed Catholic? Oh, uh, uh Patrick. Oh, okay. Stereotype. An Irish boy. Uh, it was my dad's middle name. And I only found out after my confirmation, it was actually my dad's confirmation name. He didn't have a middle name. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Patrick. Patrick. St. Patrick is the patron saint of Boston pub crawls. I made that up, but it's pretty much true. Uh, as well as many locations, including Ireland and the Archdiocese of New York, Newark, and Los Angeles, as well as engineers, paralegals, and of course, he is invoked against snakes. Yeah, he <laughs> drove all the snakes from Ireland. My patron for confirmation was St. Clair. I chose her because I love the name, which is also my grandmother's name. So it's kind of a tribute there. But it was definitely set. Like I, I knew this was the one I was going to pick when I researched her and saw she was the patron saint of television. And she's also the saint of uh, nervously waiting tweens. Isn't that right? <laughs> Getting their ears pierced for the first time? Yes, Claire's, yes. Uh, the reason she is the patron saint of television is kind of wild. Pope Pius Twelfth designated Claire as the patron saint of television in 1958, so pretty early on. 
on the basis that when she was too ill to attend mass, and television certainly didn't exist yet, she had reportedly just been able to see and hear it on the wall of her room, like watching TV. Oh, so she invented televangelism. <laughs> this also, canonically, uh, makes her the patron saint of ESP, extrasensory perception, and remote viewing. Yes, so she's a spooky queen too, and I love that. We stand a spooky saint. Absolutely, we do. Well, thank you for this uh, tour, Carrie. I think it was a, it was a nice sort of uh, getting in touch with both of our uh, cultural roots. Yeah, for sure. And uh, and a nice reminder that uh, underneath all of the uh, ceremony and ritual and the fancy clothes. There's the, an invisible foreskin ring just waiting to be shown. Exactly right. And I think that can always be celebrated. Always? Well, any time of year. <laughs> You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Instead of the news this week, I thought it would be uh, fun to subject Sean to a little game. Oh, I love games. I found a who would... Who should your patron saint be quiz in my research on youquiz.com. Oh my God. So a, a little tie in for the episode. I love this. <laughs> so let's have you take the quiz now. And since I already have, I'll compare my answers to yours at the end. Funnily enough, I tested out a few of these quizzes um, of varying quality and I got the same answer a few times. So maybe there is something to it. Okay. Hit me. Question one, where do you feel most at peace? Traveling to new places and meeting many new friends as I go, debating in an academic setting, be it with words or writing, whichever best expresses my intelligence, surrounded by the familiar company of a select few people I know and trust, philosophizing on the complex mystery of life, either aiding someone else in the nuance of their life or reflecting on my own, in a creative space where I can express myself free of judgment, in the, com in the safety of my own home, bound to no one's obligations but my own, at the service of others, knowing I can actively improve their quality of life, armed with a clear objective, I need to see through to the end. Uh, the the uh, uh, close circle of friends one. Surrounded by familiar company, blah, blah, blah. That's our guy. Okay. It said, were you the most comfortable, right? I mean, you'd be mm -hmm. a psychopath to answer anything else. Question two. Bravery is to aggravate and openly defy authority in the name of resistance, to be entirely alone, but to carry on with what needs being done anyway, to be, remain resolved to my values above all else, to let go of the illusion of control and put my faith in the universe, to confront power structures on behalf of those traditionally silenced, to endure torment in the name of unequivocal truth. I think it's the first one. To be an optimist or to bring comfort and aid to those who need 
those in need regardless of the consequences to myself. First one. Aggravate and openly defy authority in the name of resistance. Hell yeah. All right. All right, so this is choose a song lyric. I'm not going to read all the song lyrics because they're going to sound ridiculous. No, you're going to sing them. I don't even, I only know a couple of these songs, actually. Okay. All right, but the first song uh, lyric is from Sign of the Times, Harry Styles. The second is Eye of the Storm of Monsters and Men. The third, Headspace, Louis Capaldi. The fourth, Apre Moi by Regina Spector. The fifth is Florence and the Machine, Patricia. Uh, the sixth is Kesha's Learn to Let Go. The seventh is From Eden by Hozier. You can guess which one I picked. And uh, Yellow Flicker Beat by Lord. So these are just random lyrics. They really are just random lyrics. I mean, I'm sure that they have to do with some saint <laughs> in this logic. Okay, uh, I'm going to go with the one about until all you see is my ghost, empty vessel, crooked teeth. I did almost pick that one. Well, I never wore then my Hosier retainer. then came up, so. <laughs> yeah, I love your crooked teeth. Question four. Are you a martyr? Yes, I'd fight and die for my beliefs. If pushed to it, I would die defending my beliefs. No, but my life's work is a more accurate reflection of what I believe in. Give me a give me a two. I'll flatter myself on a two. Okay. Love, in one word, is protection, compassion, soothing, trust, patience, faith, ardent, devotion. Compassion. I like that. Mine was devotion. I'm devoted to you. <laughs> All right. This one is random. Choose a quote Tumblr loves to scream about. But love was always something heavy for me, something I had to carry. There can be no bargains between lions and men. I will kill you and eat you raw. Hell yeah. The universe plots to bring those who can heal each other together. One, you must let the pain visit. Two, you must allow, allow it to teach you. Three, you must not allow it to overstay. The world is changed because you were made of ivory and gold. The curves of your lips rewrite history. I took a deep breath and listened to the old brag of my heart. I am, I am, I am. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. The way I see it, every life is a pile of good things and bad things. The good things don't always soften the bad things, but vice versa. The bad things don't always spoil the good things and make them unimportant. It's that one. Good things and bad things? Mm-hmm. Pick a trope. And this is very fanficy. Love at second sight. King and Lionheart. Time travel fix it. Enemies to friends to lovers. Time travel fix it. I mean, you're a Doctor Who boy, of course. You know. What do you fear the most? To be never fully understood? To be abandoned? To realize this has all been for nothing? To succumb to nihilism? To feel silent and powerless? To be dismissed and ignored? To grow apathetic? To lose my sense of certainty in myself? God, so many of these things have already happened. I, I, think, <laughs> I think to be abandoned is, uh, is, is the answer. Okay. Choose an enchanted weapon, a sword which always strikes true, a spear whose banner will always rally aid to your cause, a book of tomes for elemental mastery and magic, a shield that never shatters. Carrie, you're going to be able to do a lot more with that book of tomes. We're obviously going to go with that. That's going to have, have some offensive spells. We're going to have some defensive <laughs> spells. All right. 
uh, and speaking of D&D kind of things, uh, the last question, what character trope are you drawn to the most? The healer with a kind smile and tired eyes, the hero whose death changes everything, the teacher who accidentally adopts their students slash wards and creates a found family, the scholar determined to prove themselves after being dismissed, the artist with a demure nature and hidden talent, the rebel who undoubtedly has a cause but picks fights and makes a scene all the same, the optimist who is the heart of the group and refuses to give up on their friends, the Robin Hood who is unafraid of the target on his back his work gives him. Uh, I will take the optimist. I knew, because it's you. Well, thank you. Okay. All right. We're tabulating. We're We're tabulating the results. It's very exciting. Interesting. Okay, Caroline, what saint am I? You're Saint Pantaleon. I knew it. Saint Pantaleon is the patron saint of physicians, midwives, lottery winners, and victories, and a comforter of crying children. He is a bringer of healing, both for those... He, he was he was, uh, he was killed by being buried under crying children. <laughs> He's a bringer of healing, both for those who perform the act on others and desire it for themselves. Known as the all-compassionate, he asked forgiveness for his executioners after they tried and failed to kill him, John Wick styles, Rasputin styles, by immolation, boiling in lead, drowning, mauling by wild beasts, and the torture will until he was ultimately beheaded which usually is kind of the final nail for a lot of these guys so i guess he got the forgiveness in right before the sword came down Mm -hmm. ultimately saint pantaleon aids those whom kindness is a driving force and those in need of aid to lay down the arms of anger do not mistake compassion and forgiveness for passivity you can tuck your anger into bed let it rest a while and walk away knowing it was just as much as much about forgiveness as easing the weight of the burden you carry Mm. I like that. Vinland Saga style. Mm-hmm. No one has any enemies, Carrie. And mine, uh, from multiple quizzes, but also from this one, was St. Cecilia. St. Cecilia is the patroness of musicians, hymns, poems, and pipe organs. Mm. Crowned in roses and lilies, she gives meaning both to the music of the ear and the song a person sings in their heart. Everybody has one, but if St. Cecilia calls to you, then perhaps yours is especially loud. Her song brings truth, faith, and protection. She died a martyr, and legend has it, after being struck thrice in the neck with a sword, she lived for three days. I love her song. Cecilia, you're breaking my heart. Her neck. You're shaking. (laughs) For those who call to her, she acts as the angel does in her story, invisible to most, but brings protection and security all the same. There's so much inside of you that is beautiful, it is just a matter of finding the voice and volume to get it out. Oh, that's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. So, I like ours. P- Petroleum. Saint, P- no, Pentalius. Pentalion. 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 Uh, listener, if you uh, if you followed along on that quiz by any chance, let us know. Oh, I guess they would have no way of finding out what they got. <laughs> Well, you just search who should your patron saint be at uquiz.com. That's the, the letter U. Um, and yeah, let us know what your patron saint is, uh, just for shits and giggles, really. But it's fun. We're from MySpace Times. We love a personality test. <laughs> uh, well, thanks, Gary. The quiz, was, the quiz was fun. What a fun segment. <laughs>
That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google Voice number, 203-666-5529. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. We certainly will be forever grateful. And special thanks to those of you already joining us on the top couple of tiers over there. Uh, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Kate Pope, Haley, Ryan, Enrique, Ira, Pete, Anna, Delaney, and our newest patron, Paul. Welcome to the Scary Squad, Paul. And uh, Jared, great, uh, great game in last weekend. I saw Jared at PAX Unplugged. Uh, the nerd convention. We nerded out together. It was great. Awesome. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel. Music is a verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal.